Welcome to GNL Voice. This is your host, John Getz, and you are listening to the first in a three-part podcast entitled The History of Gaming. This is episode one, The Interestingly Infamous. Back when I was a sophomore in high school, I remember having to write the ever-dreaded term paper, one for my physics class. I'm sure you remember those. However, when I wrote mine, there wasn't an internet. There weren't computers like we have today, although I did have a Commodore 64 with a cassette player that stored my programs. Uh, We had the high school library with several outdated books. And what almost every family had back in the day, a set of Encyclopedia Britannicas. I also had a typewriter and had a bottle of whiteout, the cut and paste of the day. So what did I choose to write about back then? Well, my 10-page term paper was on, drumroll please, the universe. Although I did get an A, my teacher wrote on the back page in red pen, topic was a bit large, John, but interesting. Next time, um, think about scope. Well, you're probably thinking I still have scoping issues, and I have to agree. A history of gaming in three roughly 30-minute podcasts. Kind of big, I know. And Mr. Larson, who was my physics teacher, if you're listening, it just goes to show that I never did learn and, quite frankly, never will. So, yes, things will be brief in this podcast. You may say, hey, what about so-and-so? You missed him or her. He's infamous. He's interesting. And you're probably right. But I only have limited time, so in this episode, I'll be talking about three interestingly infamous personalities out of a pool of, well, let's just say, a lot. These three were not necessarily bad people. Well, maybe one was, although he was technically never convicted of anything. But people, when you hear their names, you'll think, hmm, yeah, I can see why you picked him. These are people who directly and one very indirectly, affected the industry by the sheer force of their will, their wallet, their gun, or their personality. Quite simply, though, these are guys that piqued my interest and who I thought would be fun to learn more about. So I have to admit, I like to talk about subjects and people I find interesting. I'm kind of selfish that way. So, and this is a promise to you, all the listeners of GNL Voice, I, John Getz, do solemnly swear that I'll never do a podcast on the gastronomic benefits of liver and onions. That just is not going to happen. So here we go. This is a vast understatement. Gaming has been around forever. I'm sure that's shocking news. But every culture had some form of gaming. The Egyptians gambled. I doubt if they had blackjack or perfectly balanced roulette wheels or neon, but they played a game where they threw a handful of sticks, and depending upon how those sticks landed, you either won or lost. It doesn't sound like a lot of fun if you ask me, but hey. If you were to take a strip of paper 36 inches long and record the history of gaming, starting with the ancient Egyptians at the far left, and at the far right being current day, The last 100 years of our history, or so, would be represented in the last half inch of that yardstick long strip of paper. Nothing much happened between the first notch and inch 35 and a half, but everything past that tick mark has been an absolute whirlwind of activity. Just think about how casinos have evolved in the last five years. 
you have to admit, it's a long way from throwing sticks. I'm going to work backwards and start with the most recent interestingly infamous individual. This is someone on the 35 and 11 sixteenths mark who had a huge impact on the gaming industry, Hollywood, science, aviation, and Las Vegas. He became a poster child for OCD. You guessed it. This guy is Howard Hughes. Mr. Hughes was a Texan at heart. He was born on Christmas Eve, 1905, in Houston, and at no time in his life did he ever look like Leonardo DiCaprio, but he did live a playboy lifestyle. Hughes was born into his money. His family had a very successful tool business in Texas called the Hughes Tool Company. When his parents died in the mid-20s, he inherited that business and its cash when he was only 18. And at that point, he started investing in films, including the big hit in the 30s called Hell's Angels. And as it's well known, when he moved to Hollywood, he was the playboy extraordinaire. And he dated Catherine Hepburn, Ava Gardner, and Ginger Rogers, just to name a few. Most everyone knows that Hughes had a love of aviation and, of course, the story of the Spruce Goose. In 1932, he founded the Hughes Aircraft Company, and in 1935, flying a plane of his own design set the world speed record at 353 miles per hour. The behemoth Spruce Goose was designed to transport troops, but was only flown once and is now housed in a museum in McMinnville, Oregon. What you may not know is that Hughes is credited with creating the first retractable landing gear on an airplane. Remember that airline TWA? Well, that was Hughes, too, but he sold his shares for more than $500 million in 1966. He comes into the gaming scene around 1946, when he began to retreat from the world after a near-fatal plane crash. He bought up a few movie studios, and in the 60s, he purchased the Desert Inn and moved into its penthouse. And from here, with windows blackened, with dark curtains, he conducted all of his business. Few people ever saw him, and he rarely went out in public. In 1968, he tried to buy the Stardust, but that was shot down because the feds thought his influence was growing too large in the industry. He even bought a television station in Las Vegas so he could call and tell them what movies he wanted to see or what TV shows he wanted to see and when. In his final years, he would work for days on end without sleep. Only a few of his assistants ever saw him. He became emaciated and deranged from a meager diet and excess drugs. He died in 1976 while heading back to Houston from Acapulco to get medical treatment. But Hughes's legacy still affects Las Vegas. He accumulated seven resorts, including one in Reno, 2,500 mining claims, a television station, an airport, an airline, and huge tracts of land throughout the desert. Land that was once barren desert is now residential, office towers, and industrial buildings. There's an ever-growing part of Las Vegas out by Red Rock Canyon, and that started with the purchase of 25,000 acres from Hughes. It now bears the name of his grandmother, Jean Amelia Summerlin. Next, Moving backwards a sixteenth of an inch to 35 and 5 eighths is someone who has the 
is someone who has the incorrect historical designation as the man who made Las Vegas. This is completely wrong, as there were already several casinos in Las Vegas before he even set foot. More correctly, though, he may be responsible for bringing the glitz and glamour to the town. In my opinion, he was the man responsible for giving the industry and Las Vegas the stigma of a mob town. And this guy is Bugsy Siegel. There have been so many movies about Bugsy, and when I see pictures of him, the first person I think of is the actor Jonathan Banks from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. He has those sleepy, basset-hound eyes, just like Bugsy Siegel did. Bugsy was about a year younger than Hughes. He was born on February 28, 1906, in, you guessed it, Brooklyn, New York. And his birth name was Benjamin Siegel. He got the name Bugsy from his gang members because of his volcanic temper. Crazy as a bedbug is how they described him, and Bugsy was born. And he hated that name. He'd say, my friends call me Ben. Strangers call me Mr. Siegel. And guys I don't like call me Bugsy, but not to my face. Everyone knows Siegel was associated with the Flamingo. But it wasn't the first casino in Las Vegas or the Strip. And just so you know, the Strip wasn't called the Strip back then. It was just Highway 91. The El Rancho was built in 1941. And the Last Frontier was built in 1942. So Bugsy didn't create Las Vegas. It was already there. Like I said, he brought some glitz and glamour to what used to be the Old West. And what you may not know is the Flamingo wasn't his first casino. In 1945, he became part owner of the El Cortez on Fremont Street. And the El Cortez still plays tribute to Siegel with its Siegel's 1941 restaurant and the parlor bar. In many of the movies about Bugsy Siegel, they always play that the Flamingo was named after Siegel's girlfriend, Virginia Hill. And she was just as notorious as he was. She was called the Mob Queen. And she was a smuggler and a money launderer. And although her nickname was Flamingo, it had nothing to do with naming the property, as the original developer of the Flamingo had already chosen the name long before Siegel's involvement. The original budget to build the Flamingo was $1.5 million. Pretty cheap when you think about the multi-billion dollar resorts being built today, and that's billion with a B. Even with inflation, the $1.5 million is only $13 million in today's money. Trouble started, though, when building costs soared and exceeded $6 million. Mr. Lansky... Siegel's East Coast Syndicate boss decided that he'd had enough and made the recommendation that the Flamingo needed a change in management. So on the evening of June 20th, 1947, Bugsy was at Virginia's house in Beverly Hills and he was shot to death. At the same time in Las Vegas, three of Lansky's employees arrived at the Flamingo and announced the change of management. And believe it or not, Bugsy's murder is still considered an unsolved case. Although the Flamingo is a centerpiece of the Las Vegas Strip, nothing of the original Bugsy-era structure remains. The remnants of Bugsy's suite with bulletproof glass and its secret tunnel was demolished in 1993. Now finally, 
Moving as far back on our historical yardstick as I'm going to go is, is a man who really had no direct impact on the industry and never, as far as I know, put a single toe in either Las Vegas or Atlantic City. I'm going to put him at the 35 and 17 30 seconds notch. He didn't build a casino and he didn't go crazy in anyone's penthouse. However, his name is forever entrenched with poker and a very specific poker hand, one called the Dead Man's Hand. And this interestingly infamous individual is called Wild Bill Hickok. Now hold your jeers for now, because when I finish talking about him, I'll tell you exactly why I included him on this list. Now when I was younger, I read a lot about Wild Bill Hickok, and we talked about him in school. I learned even more about him after reading the book Deadwood by Peter Dexter, and that book was later turned into a series on HBO. And although fictionalized, it really piqued my curiosity about the, the era and, and the individuals. Then as an adult and doing consulting in the gaming industry, I had the opportunity to do some work in Deadwood, South Dakota. And even though Wild Bill was only in Deadwood for a few weeks, Wild Bill is big in Deadwood. James Butler Hickok was born on May 27, 1837 in Troy Grove, Illinois. His parents, both Quaker abolitionists, were part of the Underground Railroad, and Hickok's father died when he was only 15. So at 18, he left his mother and moved to the Kansas Territory, where he joined a group of anti-slavery vigilantes called the Jayhawkers. And it's here that legend has it that he met William Cody, you know, the famous Buffalo Bill. And then when the Civil War broke out, he joined the Union Army as a spy. But when mauled by a bear, of all things, he was forced to sit out most of the conflict. So while he was healing, he was employed by the Pony Express and tended to the horses in Nebraska. And it's here that the name and persona of Wild Bill was created. So Wild Bill was not a handsome dude. He's not like the movies portray him. And luckily, the nicknames that one of the local bullies gave him did not stick. That name was Duck Bill because of Hickok's very pointed nose and fat lips. That bully, David McCandless, was one of Wild Bill's first victims. McCandless tried to extort money from Bill's boss, and Wild Bill took offense to that. And although tried for the crime, he was never convicted. You'll see a pattern here. People were able to kill one another without getting convicted of anything. And before he became Wild Bill, he was known more by his soft voice, and the ladies called him that sweet boy James. And he felt so bad about killing McCandless that he gave every penny he had to McCandless's widow. In 1867, Hickok met General Custer. And Custer is quoted as saying that Hickok was, quote, one of the most perfect types of physical manhood that he ever saw. I guess that's despite his pointed nose and fat lips. And eventually, Hickok made his way to Hayes, Kansas, and he was elected county sheriff for Ellis County and he killed two men within his first month of being sheriff. And after killing four more within the next few months, he was asked to leave. It's August 2nd, 1876. 
Deadwood, South Dakota. Wild Bill is a poker-playing gunslinger. But remember, South Dakota didn't exist then. It was called Dakota Territory. And Wild Bill was playing a game of poker in a gambling saloon in Deadwood. A drunk, who had lost all of his money to Wild Bill the day before, wanted his revenge and came into the saloon and shot Wild Bill in the back of the head. And in Wild Bill's hand was a pair of aces and eights, what is now called the dead man's hand. McCall was acquitted of Wild Bill's murder. Now, are you seeing that pattern of people killing one another and not getting sentenced? Well, McCall eventually moved to Wyoming, and he started bragging a bit too much about being the man who put down Wild Bill Hickok. Because of his bragging, the Wyoming County decided to retry him, and he was found guilty this time, and he was buried with a noose around his neck. Now, you may be wondering, well, we have the Fifth Amendment that prevents double jeopardy. Well, that's true, and that amendment was created in 1791, but remember, we were in the Dakota Territory at the time, and those states weren't part of the Union until 1889. So McCall's timing was a little bit off. So now you know a little bit more about Wild Bill, and you're probably still wondering why I included him on this interestingly infamous list. And now I'm going to tell you why. I feel a little bit like Paul Harvey here. But remember, this is a story about the history of gaming, not necessarily the history of Las Vegas or, or Atlantic City. You see, in 1979, 100 years after his death, Wild Bill Hickok was inducted as a charter member into the World Series of Poker's Hall of Fame. You're listening to GNL Voice. This is your host, John Getz. Until next time.